Welcome to My Hard Drive Died, episode number 23. A show about hard drives, data recovery, forensics, and more. I am Jeff Alish. I'm here with Scott Moulton from MyHardDriveDied.com. How you doing again, Scott? I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing excellent. Um, it's a little cold up here in Michigan, but it's only the beginning of winter, so it's not too bad yet. Not a not a whole lot of snow on the ground or anything like that, so we're, we're doing pretty good. <laughs> well, and we have no snow in Georgia right now, so that's pretty nice. And actually, it's pretty warm for, uh, for a winter day. This week, it's been like 60 most of the week, 50s and 60s, so oh. I'm pretty... I'm pretty happy. <laughs> that's that is that's the nice thing about living down south that way. I'm sure is uh, you don't you know, I mean, do you guys see a whole lot of snow ever, or is it like well, sporadic? you know, you know, normally I would have said no, but last year we had snowpocalypse, which was you know shut down our highways and everything that was on the news, where you know everybody was stuck on the highway for 24 hours, uh, couldn't make their way home. So I don't know if you saw that on the news, but it was pretty bad as a whole. People made fun of us all over the country because. You know, it was really weird. It started snowing at like uh, twelve thirty in in the afternoon, right after lunch, and everybody decided to leave to go home because snow. We don't have you know we don't have a lot of ice trucks. We don't have a lot of things that we can do for salt trucks and things like that. So everybody tried to rush home, and an hour later, the roads had like an inch of ice on them, and everybody was stuck on the highway trying to go home, so they couldn't move, and they literally sat there for twenty four hours on the highway, frozen. Wow. So, okay. so uh, we can have some scary times because <laughs> we don't know how to deal with it. Um, but, uh, but I have an escape route. I own a house in Florida. So as soon as I hear snowpocalypse, I'm going to get in a car and go south. <laughs> there you go. That's a great escape route to have. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Oh, very cool. Well, we got uh, last, uh, I think a couple weeks ago, somebody had sent in an email with some information and asking a couple questions. And, and I'll go ahead and read that. And okay. then... Uh, We'll let you take those questions, and we'll we'll go from there. Okay. All right. And this is from Michael Dodd. Said, good day, Scott and Jeff. Hope I didn't screw that up too much. <laughs> <laughs> Must be from Australia. Or... Exactly. Oh, yeah. It's from Brisbane. Brisbane, yeah. yep. Um, I really enjoy your podcast, and I get so much out of everyone. So keep up the great work. I am a part-time computer repairer. I have some questions about recovering data from Macs. I'm hoping you can do a podcast on this topic. What software does Scott recommend, both paid and free? And has Scott done any recovery from MacBook Air SSDs, iMacs new Fusion Drive? Also, if Scott could explain the HFS file system and Yosemite, thanks. Regards, Michael Dodd, Brisbane, Australia. Thanks. Okay, so let me uh, let me try to work backwards from the last question because I remember that one more readily uh, <laughs> at, at the moment. Uh, well. There's there's a lot I'll, I can say about the HFS file system as a whole, but <clears throat> Yosemite, you know, we're only you know slightly more than a month or so old right now. There's been a lot of complaints about uh, the interface and some bugginess and some varieties of things. And I do know for a fact that there have been some situations where partition structures uh, have been messed up, especially on uh, some of the the core fusion drives and a couple of other things that have happened. There's been some some posts and a lot of listings for it. I don't have, you know, even doing data recovery and doing it day to day, it's kind of like a, you don't have time to kind of stop and go over everything new like you used to when you're starting out or doing stuff. So until I have a problem in a lot of cases, then I'm troubleshooting it and dealing with it on the back end when it happens. And uh, right now, at least so far, 
uh, we haven't seen a lot of drives that were coming in because of Yosemite messing up the partition structure and everything else. You know, either it's a slow turnaround time or at least people now know they're going to have a backup in the process of doing an upgrade. I hope people know that by now. Um, so we haven't seen a lot of that. I personally am staying away for, you know, another month or two on Yosemite using it internally in the office or doing things other than a test system. Uh just mainly for the bugs and the problems. It's become a tradition at this point. And, you know, I think, I feel like Apple's um, response to bugs and some of the, and having more bugs in more recent times has become a bigger problem than it used to be. It used to be a very stable, you could even count on most upgrades going pretty well. But uh, lately, it doesn't seem to be going so well, not only for for the OS, but for iPhones and things like that as well, coming out and immediately having a huge number of bugs. It kind so, of sounds like another company that I know of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. Yeah. Well, you know, it's... Uh, <laughs> You know, it's amazing how there's a lot of uh, other companies who have improved that view and have done a far better job than what they had done in the past uh, as well. So, you know, typically now, at least with Microsoft products, other than the fact that they're, you know, you might not like it or hate the interface. Like I cannot stand, I still cannot stand Windows 8, 8.1. Okay. It, it's it's still a horrible, in my mind, it's still the most horrible interface that there is. And uh, I, I, and, and I have to use it and, and you know, they're, they're doing the whole kill the OEM, you know, side of selling any version of Windows except for professional at this moment in version seven, and they're on the path to killing version seven. So, which I think is probably the best and most stable of the operating system. But, you know, here's the weird thing for me I, in a in a in a environment that I'm in in data recovery. It's an old field. It's been around for a long time. A lot of the tools and a lot of the things that you get accustomed to. You don't upgrade or you don't change because something breaks. You know, you tend to be very stagnant in what you're using. Like, I know this problem fixes this problem. So when a drive comes in, we've got machines that are using old software and old versions that fix a particular problem. And when you upgrade them or you move to the new versions, they might have a glossy, nice interface, but they may not work as well or there may be other bugs or they're introducing 64-bit code. So the surprising thing in data recovery is a huge amount of the software, equipment, and stuff that we have is still running on 32-bit. And so it has never been upgraded. There's a lot of hardware and a lot of things have never been upgraded to 64-bit or to uh, even be able to install on a new version of Windows. So we have a tremendous number of XP uh, machines running still to deal with um, like firmware updates and certain things. They're only written in 32-bit. They're not written in 64-bit. So if you have a 64-bit machine, it's almost useless for doing any of those things. So, so we still tend to run a lot of XP and while I run Windows 7 for other things, uh, mainly you would use it because you need 64-bit and, and memory to process like a RAID array or something right, like that. Right, right. Uh, but we're, we're you know, you, we typically stay stagnant in certain stages, and you don't change or upgrade a machine. You buy a new machine and bring in something new to do the new thing, but you don't change what you already have. Now, now in a lot of what you're doing, um, a lot of the, the software or hardware – um, if you were to move to new operating systems, here's what a lot of people have a problem with. And I'm actually redoing uh, Windows XP machines for people that do surveying because they would have to spend like $10,000 in order to buy the new software to run on a Windows 7 machine. So they're going, I'm, I don't do enough money or I don't, I, don't, I don't do enough business to justify spending that $10,000 
just so I can run my software and hardware and stuff on a uh, Windows 7 machine. Is that the same thing with a lot of the stuff that you use? Um, you, you know, there's well, there's two things. One, in that realm, you're looking for people who, you know, sold the product. And back in, you know, the earlier days when they sold the product, they didn't, there wasn't a lot of things that were activation or, you know, licensing fees. Like now every software company has gone to like a monthly licensing fee or a yearly licensing fee in order to continue to build revenue. Um, and so what you have now is you have a lot of old school stuff that they never got any more money or they never reaped any more benefits from, and they're trying to force them down another path. So you end up with a situation where, okay, fine, if you want to install it on Windows 7, uh, you know, you're going to have to pay this money and upgrade to the new version, and they're forcing them in a path so that you can, you know, regenerate income. But what you'll find is engineers and accountants and CPAs and people like that they don't care about upgrading their software. They don't want the new slick interface. They actually do everything they can to try to stay, in a lot of cases, on the older stuff because they know you get accustomed to how you're keying stuff in and how you're using your screen. And when you change something, even one box, it throws them off because they'll actually – you'll see an accountant sit there and do it when they start to type something in. You'll see them. They know exactly how many times they can hit enter, and it's now a habit. So – They'll know when you're moving from box A to box C to enter in some data, they hit enter, you know, six times really fast. And if you throw something else on the screen, you know, GUIs are really nice, but they're not great for key entry. Right. And so, so, uh, so you have this kind of situation now where, okay, so Microsoft comes out with a new OS. They're going to try to do everything they can to force everybody to give them a new path. And then once they move to this new software, now they're going to be on a licensing fee structure that's going to, you know, be, people, some of the companies are even starting to expire it. Like you only pay for a year. And then if you don't use it after, if you don't try to pay for the new version, they make it obsolete. And, uh, and, and it, and it's quite annoying actually. Uh, like, uh, I'll give you an example. I use a, um, you know, Peachtree was accounting software. It's now owned by Sage, and so Sage software. If you have Peachtree on there, you may be fine using Peachtree for five years without doing any upgrades. But now they actually made a module in the new version that phones home, and every year at the end of the year they have a box that pops up that says your software is obsolete, and you know forces like there's actually like an acknowledgement every time you turn around, and it does it for everybody who's on the network who's connected to this to, to you know Peachtree pops up a box and says, you know, please give us more money. You're obsolete. We're not going to run this vert, blah, blah, blah. And so far they don't kill it. They don't shut it down, but I'm, I hate the fact that they're doing a phone home to try to say, you know, there's no reason for my accounting software to phone home. Right. Right. It, it, it's tough, you know, and we understand that these businesses, uh, you know, have to make money. And I think a lot of people are going to the, um, you know, pay, pay by, pay the, uh, by the month you know, um, in order to justify, I mean, if you, if you get office anymore, it's, it's like you're going to pay the monthly fee versus, you know, spending four or $500, you know, every couple of years for the latest, greatest office, um, you know, in order to, I'm sure increase their revenues and, you know, put R and D and different things in these pieces of software. But we, you know, a lot of the older software, it, like you said, it just works the way it is. And quite honestly, it could probably work that way for, forever pretty much um because you know accounting you're doing the same things over and over every year and that stuff doesn't change a whole lot but you know these come in order for these companies to stay in business they're um they're just coming up with different ways and i think the monthly thing is is really what's going 
what's going to uh, you know happen more often than not uh, instead of people just paying four or five hundred dollars every few years. Um, I, I, I agree, but there there's a huge thing that bothers me, and you know I've been in computers my whole life. I mean, I was you know started when I was twelve, and I've you know other than one short spell where I worked for another uh, company doing consulting, I've never worked for anybody else, and uh, or you know and then as a consultant in my own business. Uh, for other people. But uh, but one of the things that's bothered me, you know, over the years, you see people have always wanted to upgrade. You know, a new thing comes out, there's some new advantages and you want to upgrade. But, uh, you know, a few years ago, and it was pretty much started by, you know, Windows XP trying to do activation. A few years ago in the Windows side, a lot of companies started trying to go to activation in a, in a process there and for you to get updates. And just as an example, I'm going to go back to the accounting software, and I know that might not be a huge interest for a lot of people, but let me tell you one of the things that's happened. Like, I normally don't upgrade my accounting software at all. I wouldn't normally do it. And uh, and so one year, I had paid for the updates, and I got the updates, and I got the updates all the way through, you know, like September of the following year, and then you would have to pay another $1,000 to continue to get your updates or do whatever. And so usually right before it runs out, I have to make a decision if I'm going to spend that money or not. So I'll do the last update that I have available so that I can make sure that I'm reaping the benefit of what I paid for and then decide not to pay or whatever and move on. And one of the last updates that the software did broke a particular report that you have to have when you're doing your end of year stuff. And of course, even though they know it was a bug and they broke it, they I feel like they broke it on purpose. I feel like it was broken on purpose because they have some bean counters who know at certain times of the year how many people uh, and what reports are going to have to be done and do things. They broke the report. Then in order to get the report fixed, I would now have to pay for the update. And I was really pissed off about that, and it kind of made it seem like they did it on purpose to destroy the ability for people to continue to use the same version and that they would have to pay for the yearly update so they could move into the new version so they could do their new end of year that they got stuck in. So I just – you know, and the previous version, the previous one right before that update, which was no longer available for download – worked fine, and the report worked fine. And if I just hadn't done the update, I wouldn't have paid for the update. Gotcha. Uh, and so I tend to kind of see that in a lot of things, and we can even you know translate that a lot into say you know iPhones as an example. Um, one of the one of the trends that you see is you'll notice it's hard to stay on version seven if version eight comes out because all of the apps will eventually not work. Like eventually you'll get to a spot where no apps update and you can't buy any new apps because they all are going to require the new developer's kit and the new update, which then makes all previous versions obsolete. Whether or not, you know, there's there's very few things that I've seen over time that continue to work in that realm. And so it is all about money. And and I, and I don't just want to seem like I'm griping here and doing this, but it, from that standpoint, it's caused this kind of a, a, a freeze situation. People in the know are in a situation now where they freeze and they don't make changes very rapidly anymore because the repercussions are so large. No, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, you definitely don't want to. I think if you're producing software or hardware or what, you don't want to force somebody to be, you know, to move to the next system. And especially, yeah, if you're breaking reports and stuff like that that people need and use, that is wrong just to push them into that, you know, into that realm. And, and I'm, you know, as far as updating and stuff like that, I'm very guilty because I love the latest, greatest, shiny new thing. And, you know, so I'll upgrade as soon as I, you know, possibly can. Other than typically in the past, up until actually Windows 8, um, I would at least wait a year for for the operating system to mature 
and then I would move over to, you know, the, the newest, uh, OS, but, um, windows eight, I actually didn't have any problem with, but that's, that's my story. <laughs> well, uh, maybe it's because of the limited quantity of certain things that you or residential people are using because it has huge problems and huge repercussions in corporate and a number of other things from that standpoint. So, and, and it's, it's unbearable, you know, without completely like hacking the interface and disabling things, there's there's no point in some of the events. Like there's no there's no accountant who's going to use. There's no again CPA firms or or even engineers and that kind of stuff. The interface actually gets in the way of their job. Right. And it, when it doesn't make them, you know, when they're not as productive, you know, because they're crunching numbers all day long. Um, yeah, that makes a big difference. And and time is you know of the essence with that stuff. So. Uh, no, that makes sense. Well, you know what? I'm I'm just looking at the email here, and uh, okay. I, we got kind of sidetracked there, but you know, good discussion. What what actually is the HF HFS file system? So uh, HFS, and it's actually HFS Plus at this point. Okay. Uh, it's it's the hierarchical file system, and so it is what the Macs use for their file system. And the the history of this is in uh in 1984 when Steve Jobs was there and they released the Mac and the first Mac went out the door. It actually went out with uh, something called the Macintosh file system on it. So MFS was what it was, but MS uh, MFS was a uh, uh, atrocity. It was terrible. And there was all kinds of problems with the file system itself. And so in uh, 1985, one year after it was released, they upgraded and they changed to the hierarchical file system. So the hierarchical file system, um, it had a couple of things in it. And you'd notice as a first GUI operating system that was commercially available, it's not the first ever, but it's the first one that was, you know, on a massive scale. There were certain things that they wanted to do. They didn't have a registry. Like one of the things that Windows added later was a registry to store certain pieces of content and components and things like that so that you could actually have a database that you're storing content in. And uh, whereas the file system normally didn't store that data, they actually in Mac's built into the HFS file system, the ability to store content along with the file. So there was descriptors and content that went with it. So there would be, you know, X and Y coordinates of a screen and things like that. So they designed the file system to kind of encapsulate all the data that it needed surrounding a particular app or a particular, you know, piece of data, uh, even, even, you know, word files or, or in the, in the back in that day it would be, you know, text or RTF files. Um, all of that stuff was encapsulated in this particular piece of content. And so the hierarchy of file system, it looks like an org chart. It looks like uh, you have a root of the tree, and that root then uh, every – and I think it's approximately every 10,000 files. They say it's a B-tree format. Every two-thirds – every time it gets two-thirds full, it branches and aware levels. And what that means is you start with one node and you start installing your system, and so your Mac OS is going to take up the root of the tree. Then as it gets, you know, 60, you know, 6,000 files or something like that, it starts to branch off. And you start having now two levels and then three levels, and it will always wear level with the approximate same number of, of items, uh, nodes, in each one of those each one of those nodes itself. So it will try to wear level itself to try to keep itself organized and build a structure so there's a tree structure it can go down to get to locations faster than you know following an entire straight line like you would have uh in some other operating systems like fat okay no that makes perfect sense so you're not so you're basically instead of just digging down you know in the file structure 
in just digging down, digging down, digging down. This is actually branching off so that it, it can move. I, that makes a lot of sense. So it can move around faster and you can access the data, you know, quicker. So um, what, and I asked this question because I really don't know the answer to it. Um, what is the, what was the whole point of having a registry, um, you know, on the, on the Microsoft side versus um, so, Mac going or Apple going with something like this? Well, so uh, one of the first things, and this is, you know, a design decision that you're talking about 1984 people making, you're, you're saying, you know, in 1984, what did you have that you could use? There was no, you know, there was no multitasking operating, like we're talking OS2 days just starting out. So, you know, that was the beginning of a multitasking operating system that we really had that was available on a PC. Uh, there was a couple other, you know, small pa packages trying to make it work, but you know, you're talking about a day and age where um, every byte counted and every piece of space that you had counted and you didn't have a lot of extraneous things to store content to have additional threads and things that were going to run and do things. So they built it into the file system so that when you open up the file system, you open up a piece of something, it reads all that content at once and then that's what's displayed on the screen and you don't have to touch it unless you're using this particular uh, item and it would touch that one branch of the tree. But now, if you look back and you look at it from a Windows perspective and you look at the fact that the registry, from a safety standpoint, the registry doesn't interact with the file system, or not directly. The, the content that's in the registry, if a branch dies in the registry, it doesn't affect your file's existence. It may affect your system running. And, okay. and don't get don't get me wrong there. You know that's that's a different you know situation from a standpoint of when I'm looking at it from a recovery standpoint. No one cares about a registry. I seldom and called upon to restore a registry in a data recovery process. What we care about is the data that it acted upon. You can always reinstall the program, re resupply the data, and then you know the registry takes you know whatever application and whatever happens. There might be an action that's taking place based upon that. But on HFS. You're now storing – and it was genius back then. Anybody sitting around would have said, oh, this is genius. And and now as we're moving into Windows, you don't want to store that content with your file system because that means every interaction you have, say, for instance, you move a window across the screen and the scroll bar changes, that's not critical data. That's non-critical data. And so that will be tracked someplace else in a Windows system versus the HFS file system, which actually will track it as part of the file system itself. And, and some of this, as the system has aged and we've gone into newer things, they've split off or branched off some of this stuff. So some of the non-critical data is now moved out of what would be stored there. So they don't store serial numbers and things like that there. They store those in plist files or, or other files that you know a programmer or designer actually decides what he's going to store it in locally on the Mac. But generally, you're looking at a compiled plist file. And the reason is, is a serial number – for a piece of software isn't critical. And you don't want to put that in the file system. You don't want to embed it. And we don't in Windows either. We don't embed that in the file system so that when you're trying to read a file and trying to locate your directory structure, you're not updating a non-critical place with a critical a, a critical item with a non-critical item that might cause a failure on a write or cause it to crash or cause it other detrimental things. And so when you're looking at it from a transaction standpoint, it is far more detrimental to have your non-critical items taking action on a critical item like your file system so and, uh, i was going to say what so with the hfs and you know compared to you know fat and fat 32 and all that so is is it hard to um read that if if the data gets corrupted 
in an HSFS file system, is it harder to read that data? Then it yes. is okay. It is tremendously. Uh, okay. So, so here's here's the problem, and uh, uh, let me update one other thing on HFS because it, it was HFS from 1985 until 1997. In 1997, when Steve Jobs came back, um, when next bought Apple, when uh, when that happened, he had a a Unix based file system because Next built Next up based upon a a, a base of BSD. So basically, you're you're talking now. You've got all the attributes and all the things that are sitting in a Unix-based file system that now need to be translated into a HFS file system so that we could continue forward in the Max paradigm with HFS and have some backwards compatibility to previous Macs because you can't build a new base and a new and a new system without showing compatibility for the previous people that already owned Macs. Otherwise, you just ostracize them and they wouldn't buy anymore. So they updated HFS to HFS Plus. And they did a couple of things like, you know, take it to 32-bit and did, uh, you know, made some functional changes to how the wrapper and the file system and everything worked so that it could accommodate the Unix-based uh, items that needed to be accommodated in the file system. And then there was no journaling. There was nothing that was updated until 2002. They added journaling to HFS, which allows transactions to be backed out. So if your machine crashed or something happened, it would say, well, this last transaction didn't complete. So we will now remove that transaction and return it to the previous state in case your system crashes. And that's what journaling's for, which uh, we've had in, you know, when you consider Windows and what happened in Windows, uh, NTFS is what we're now basically using and been using since, you know, the 90s, 97, 90, whatever. Uh, prior to 90, you know, 7, 96 with uh, NT351 coming out, prior to that, it was actually called HPFS. HPFS was the high-performance file system, which is OS2's platform, and OS2 made a small change when it when it went from OS2 to NTFS they changed like block 17 which was a single bit failure if you had a one spot where one single sector failed it would actually cause the file system to die and corrupt and that's a problem we have with HFS when you're talking HFS you have a tree and the tree has a root and it daisy chains together and if you have one segment one sector that fails in the tree in the node it can't continue on on the rest of the branch so when something gets corrupt, it's extremely bad in HFS. Okay. Now what? Now and let me throw this in there too. What about the uh, Linux file system? Is that any any different? How does that compare to the HFS file system that Apple uses versus that you know NTFS that uh, you know Windows <clears throat> uses? Well, so Linux Linux's file system uh, EXT is is there's EXT two, three, and four, and then and. There's also other renditions of items that have taken place, like Riser, as an example. And Riser was popular for a while till Hans Riser like killed his wife and buried her on the uh, <laughs> on a trail someplace. And then oh my gosh. we we call it we call it the the murderer's file system. Uh, so so uh, so, but but Hans Riser had written something that was very similar actually to the Macintosh file system sitting on top of EXT. Riser actually is a B tree, and it actually does do hashing and does things very similar to what uh, HFS did, and it made it much faster. So it was a pretty fast file system, and HFS is still a fast file system when you consider what it's trying to do, and it was written you know, two decades ago. Okay. Uh, so, so when you consider those kind of things, of course, our machines are faster and everything else is compensating for it, but 
you know, EXT itself uh, is is originally there's some there's quite a bit of changes, and I don't want to cause like you know I know every Linux guy will write me an email. <laughs> uh, you know, UFS. It's based on uh, you know a the theory, the original theory was that it was going to be a Unix derivative, but of course it's not actually a Unix derivative because it was started as a separate project uh, f- completely. And then there's an entire process that took place for writing the file system, but you, you're still looking at some items that are very similar to UFS, which is the Unix file system. But moving ahead, at least in this particular instance, they did a lot with smaller hard drives to protect the data. So in uh, when you're looking at ext2 and ext3 you're looking at a lot of redundancy they have a huge amount of of redundancy across their tables uh, and and the cylinder block groups actually maintaining that content across the entire drive so it has a lot of work to do whenever you make a change to a file it has to update multiple tables so that there is redundancy in case of a place you know, a single sector failure or a block failing, there's another copy of it someplace else. So they'll actually be able to reproduce that. Um, and ext4 actually removes some of the redundancy because there's too many, too too much redundancy for it to be high speed. It's not a very high speed file system because if you have a two terabyte drive, it was written in a time when, you know, 1992, 1993, when you're looking at small hard drives, it was easier to update a a quantity or a smaller amount of space than it is today to update a two terabyte or a four terabyte drive. So, so it is pretty redundant. It is pretty robust. Um, there, there is one slight problem in doing recoveries for Linux file systems, though, and that's the fact that because of the way the blocks were designed, it's only a small amount of data that can be that can be. And it was expected to be a small amount of data. We didn't have, you know, two meg pictures back then. Uh, there was supposed to be a small amount of data. Then there's called uh, indirect blocks, and indirect blocks then chained together for another set of blocks. And so these these blocks cause a problem because there will be a pointer or right in the middle of a recovery. So if you're like carving out a picture and you're trying to recover a picture from a damaged drive, you actually these pointers and these items will actually exist in the picture, causing it to skew or push it off a bit. So we actually have to compensate for that or remove them or have an automated process for removing them, whereas you don't have that exact thing happening over in HFS or in NTFS. You do kind of have it in FAT, but you don't have it in in the other file systems exactly the same way where it might be contiguous or fragmented data. So in, in your opinion and your expertise, what, what is the easiest file system to basically recover data from? What's, what's the one that you have least amount of problems with, or you go, Hey, this is, this is no problem. We can get the data back no matter what, um, you know, those types of things. NTFS, NTFS by far is it, 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 and I still literally think it's sheer genius. I mean, there's and there's a book that's been written on this that I went through and actually contacted the authors of it and everything because we wanted to go through some of the design specs for what actually happened with NTFS because it was HPFS and Microsoft and IBM had a deal and they worked together and they and Microsoft actually wrote or the way I understand it from the authors of the book that Microsoft wrote a huge amount of the code that actually is the NTFS file system that was HPFS. And it's, uh, I think it's sheer genius. It basically is only two sectors that retain all the information, all the metadata about every file. So two sectors is, is the entry and the entry itself, it is reserved at the beginning of the disk. So at the beginning of the disk, you have uh, an area called uh, for the master file table that is reserved 
And it varies uh, depending on which operating system you're using, how much space is reserved. But in Windows XP, it was originally 12%, 12.5%. And then uh, in uh, Vista Windows 7 and 8, they've changed that amount because hard drives are much bigger than they used to be. Uh, but it reserves amount of space, and so nothing gets overwritten. When you actually format a drive, the reason you can actually recover the data, even after you've reinstalled your operating system, is that it starts in that reserve space, and it starts writing every pairs of two sectors the same files that it already had had or files that were from the, the new operating system you're reinstalling. So there's a huge amount of data that still remains as long as you haven't done updates and reinstalled programs where it starts to kind of you know exceed what the operating system's files would be. So those two sectors will still be reserved for every file in that amount of space further down in the MFT entries. And so it's pretty well protected. And it's, and it's you know, I don't think they were thinking about it in a data recovery sense in 1984, 1985 when they're designing it. I think they were thinking about it in the fact of, you know, your disk is a circle and the circle on the outside edge of your disk is faster um, it's not faster because it, it doesn't spin faster or anything like that. It's faster because on the outside edge of the disk, more data can be stored without moving the head. So you have a head latency problem when you have to move your head across the disk. And so the more data that can be stored in the cylinder on the outside edge of the disk, the faster it's going to read and be able to manipulate that data. And since timestamps and dates and things like that are the most updated thing on your disk, that was a perfect location to put those that MFT entry because those are the things you're updating all the time. Every time you touch a file or you open a file or you create a file, it's going to modify that content. And so it's just it's it's just a perfect scenario where they reserve this amount of space on the outside edge of the disk because it was a spinning disk. Which today, you know, you wouldn't do that on a solid state disk. There'd be no point in that. Um, but it makes it extremely recoverable. So in in a file system, so when you're writing data to the hard drive. Basically, the reason you can recover now, this is my basic understanding, is that it's not going to overwrite anything. It, it, it goes in a, in a structure where it starts from the outside, goes to the inside, but it doesn't really overwrite anything until that disk is full to a certain extent, right? Well, uh, so understand there's a difference between the MFT table and the actual data itself, because once you get outside the MFT tables themselves, your data is just raw data on the disk. So whatever it is, it's just written there, okay. and it's written and written in clusters. And there'll be a, a small space, basically, that's you know whatever the buffer between clusters is that's left by files that are it's called slack space. Whatever's left, that blank space will exist. So it is possible that while you're rewriting your file system, that a portion of the files don't completely match up and they may overwrite some data depending on defragmentation and where they are positioned in the clusters on the space. But you are at least typically looking at um, a better chance of recovery for the majority of your data. Not always 100%. You may lose you know, 35 or 100 files, but it's extremely good because that amount of reserve space, the metadata that pointed to where the data was, is still there. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Okay. So now, okay, so we've we've kind of talked. So the HFS file system is, uh, you know, being on the Apple side. Um, is there any intricacies that you have to do in order to get that, you know, that data, data recovered? Yeah, it's it is extremely painful, uh, I, and I wish I had a lot of good solutions to tell people because, you know, the problem with HFS is, um, 
if if you lose the root, you're losing the beginning of a binary tree. And then all the data that tells you where everything else is from there down is essentially lost. It's very difficult to rebuild this this metadata. However, there are a couple of tools that actually will try to scan for nodes, like they know where a beginning of a node is and where the end of a node is, and you can scan for a process for searching for these nodes and try to rebuild some semblance of what the representation of the drive used to be. Now, understand there is a difference all metadata, all the things that have to do with your folders and your file structure and even file names, that's all metadata. And what that means is it's data about data. So you're literally saying, here's my description of what this is. And all file systems have some place to store this metadata. And that, that metadata is not actually technically important to the, to the content. So you write a picture your picture is written in a raw form on the drive, so it takes it takes your data and stamps it out on the drive. Then it goes to this table and it writes in the table says, "Oh, he called this file Bob.jpg," and in that file it has a date and a time, and here it is. And it put all that there. <clears throat> now, again, don't confuse the fact that a picture has a date and time in it. That's done by the camera, and there's some other reasons for that, so it tracks internal information in the picture, but that has nothing to do with the data that is the metadata. Okay. And so this this metadata, um, you know, it's 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 important um, f- as your description, but not necessarily for the picture itself. I can recover the picture by scanning for what I know is a JPEG header, like FFD8. I can scan for FFD8. I can say here's the beginning of it, and then go to FFD9, which would be the end of the picture, and I could chop that piece out by hand or with an automated program like a, you know, software that you download that says I'm going to do picture recovery. That's all it does is it just says where's FFD8. I hope it's at the beginning of a 512 byte sector, and then I'm going to cut it out from here to the end. And okay. the problem can be other junk can be in the middle. Like you can have in your file system, your file system says, oh, here's some available space, but this next spot isn't big enough, so we're going to move the back half of your file over here around around the other piece of data. And when you carve out that space in between, you're going to get something that doesn't belong. Okay, so now is it easy – well, I won't, I won't say easy. Is it possible to pull that data out of the middle of a JPEG for all intents and purposes? Um. It, it is, but here's the problem. Um, it's very difficult to know where that is. And so there are, there's a professor back in 2003, 2002, 2003, who had this idea, hey, JPEG is an algorithm, and we know what the algorithm is. I can try to calculate when I get to the edge of a picture. I can try to calculate what the rest of the data should have been that was next to that edge because it's a dithering algorithm. So he can you can figure this out. And so he wrote a proof of concept tool to try to search for content that's on each side of this. And <clears throat> the, uh, the, the, the process has to do with the algorithm and entropy and all these other things that I may not completely understand. But uh, he's one of the first guys to actually write something that figures out where the entropy is for these two halves of a picture and carve out the space without having to have the metadata because the metadata would tell you where the rest of the picture was. It would actually say, here's this piece of the chunk, and this is this piece of the chunk, and you just take these two pieces and stick them together. And I, I know I'm you know, trivializing it, but for the sake of a of, of good podcast. Yeah, um, exactly. <clears throat> it, it, but, it helps me to understand, because I'm, I'm picturing it in my mind, and uh, yeah, it gives me a better understanding of, 
I, I know it's not as as trivial as as the way you're presenting it, but at the same time, it's it gives me an understanding of of how the file system works a little bit better. Um. So let me the uh, the point though with this whole thing with the entropy thing is that he wrote a proof of concept, but he had a uh, he had a grant. He got a grant to do a program, and he started selling this program for like twenty bucks. And it's a uh, it's and I'll spell this for people so that they know what I'm trying to say. But it's called Adroit A D R O I T. That's what he called this company when he set it up, and he wrote this piece of code. It's Adroit Photo Recovery, and in the world of software, in the world of tools that are out there, most tools just do this carving process where they look for F59 and then FF, you know, D, you know, F58 at the beginning, F59 and carve it out. This is the one tool that stands out. And I'm not going to say it's perfect, and I'm not going to say that you're always going to win with this tool. But he started selling it for 20 bucks, and then somebody goes, hey, um, you know where this really applies is forensics. Data recovery people are kind of cheap, and they're nothing like forensics people. Forensics people got a lot of money, and <laughs> and so I said, why don't you don't you take that same program and stick the word forensics at the front of it and add a dongle, and then sell that program uh, as a forensics tool, and instead of being uh, twenty bucks, it's two thousand oh, dollars. And wow. so 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 he sells uh, Adroit photo forensics recovery tool and and there so there are two tools there's one that's just the photo recovery tool because he had a grant my understanding if i understand how this works correctly because he had a grant he has to continue to have this other piece of software and and have it for available you know it's got to be available or something so so it's still out there and it's at photo-recovery.info so you can go to photo-recovery.info and that's the website and you will find Adroit Photo Recovery. And you won't find a button that says buy it or do anything. But there's a button for downloading it. And you download it. You execute it on your computer. And then it will tell you, hey, uh, I'm 29 bucks now, I think is how much it is. It's $29. And you pay for it. And in my opinion, from a photo recovery tool, uh, for what it does, until somebody points out to me that there's some other you know, tool that's similar in process and how it actually does entropy and looks for stuff. Uh, this one, typically from corrupt and damaged things, or even from rate arrays that are misaligned and stuff, it'll actually try to figure out and scour the disk and paste back together the pieces of a picture, removing all that content and fragmentation and things that are chopped up in there. So it's very surprising. Um, I'm not going to say it's perfect. What I'm going to say is about 30 to 35% of the time, you can get stuff you can't get anywhere else. Okay. So all the carving tools will always fail in those situations. This one tool, because it searches for entropy, it will take it a long time. On a big disk, it has to go back and forth over the disk, it seems, several times to rebuild this picture and do this. Uh, now, the forensics tool is almost identical. It's almost 100% from you know the $29 tool to the $2,000 tool. The difference in the forensics tool is it has logging. So in forensics, in a lot of cases, if you're sitting in a courtroom and you want to tell somebody where this data came from, you have to you know say, here it is on these sectors, and I found it from you know this location to this location. And so it tracks all the logs and produces logs. So, so for forensics people, and there may be a few other things, but 
essentially that's what you're looking for is the logging side of that so that you can say in forensics you know where these things are from or you can go manually grab it and reproduce it the same way that it did because it's probably not going to do the exact same thing twice uh so it's logging process is very important in that particular instance so that's so that's one instance where you could get back pictures um now there's been a couple of people who did the same idea for movies and for music because it's very similar to the algorithm and how things work but i don't i don't think they've done like a real proof of concept sellable tool Uh, i think it's been like you know you know doctorate thesis type stuff and so that never seen one that was perfect from that standpoint in the other realm pictures are the main thing and you, know, you can see why in forensics if you if you have a child porn case or something like that and the guy deleted everything you could see where this forensics tool would be very valuable and it would be worth it uh, for you to go through this and if you're doing data recovery it's a cheap program to do data recovery with for corruption and like i said even on a rate array where you've got segments that are split up it it works you know 30 35 of the time now, what, is this is this a Windows only tool or? It is a Windows only tool, but it doesn't matter what the drive is that you're working on. Okay. So, so in other words, <clears throat> since it's looking for the entropy and it's cutting out these pieces, it will because data is raw on a drive when you're storing it on almost every file system that's out there. You can literally just plug in a Mac or plug in you know the drive and run it on a Windows machine and do the recovery, which you know I'll tell you even in my office, even for doing Macs. Like, you know, 99% of everything I do is on a Windows machine just because that's where all the commercial tools are. Okay. Uh, you know, even if I'm doing – there are times – so we have some Linux machines that are running to do specific things for Linux like uh, LVMs and things like that. When you're trying to deal with, uh, you know, the logical volume management side or in RAID arrays, then we have to do the plug-in for Linux and basically get it running there after we've done our repair and our recovery and rebuilt the drive and done all the other stuff. And then Macs, um, if you're doing certain things with a Mac, I'll normally start with the Windows side. And if you know some of my Windows tools fail, then I'm going to fall back to some Mac tools. Um, and I'll use a Mac. Uh, we have several Macs running in the lab just to do certain types of recoveries. <clears throat> and so, uh, so if I was doing a Mac and I was just trying to do picture recovery or pictures as an additional item – on top of the other stuff I've recovered, I would try this Adroit recovery and do that. Uh, one of the other things that I, I would uh, – so so there's a couple of tools, and there's – and I wish I could tell people they could still get this. And, um, again, take this with a grain of salt when I tell you this. Um, in the old days, the company Stellar Phoenix used to be what I considered a good company. Today, I don't know if I consider it the same way. I typically don't buy any of their products or using their products anymore. Uh, except for one, I still use this old copy of HFS Recovery. They they sold this tool that was a Windows Recovery toolkit for Macintosh, and it was a technician edition. And it was like 450 bucks or something. And you know, back 10 years ago when I bought it, that was pretty expensive for a tool to recover uh, Macs. There just weren't that many of. Okay. And, and uh, and the tool is quite, quite different than the same tool. Like they've got a new tool with the same name. And so the tool I have is version 2.0. And I don't know if the guy died or what happened or they needed to go to 64-bit and they, you know, something happened, this dude, he went away. Um, all I know is that the tool from version 3 on is basically, uh, even for $400, is a big red button. 
and you push this big red button and it just looks like it's going to go out there and carve stuff and it, you don't really see anything happening behind the scenes or do anything. The original tool that I have had a dongle and so it still works and I still use it. And it actually looked more like a plain Jane square, you know, what you would expect a Windows tool to look like, really boring interface and the whole thing. And uh, it would actually search through binary trees. It actually started rebuilding the structure, and you could see it searching in binary, and you could see stuff coming up. And then it would start doing the tree restructure, and it would start rebuilding from damaged nodes the structure and rebuild a damaged HFS partition structure. And did a pretty awesome job at it. It still does a really awesome job, and I use it um, not every day. There's a couple other tools I try to use, you know, sometimes first, depending on what the situation is, um, because it is an older 32-bit tool. Doesn't have a lot of memory, like it, you know, you have lim memory limitations in 32-bit. Sure. So if you're doing a huge drive or RAID array, you may have some problems there. But uh, but uh, R Studio is the next tool kind of in my list. Cause I know he had asked, um, in the email from the questions you said, what's, what software does Scott recommend both paid and free? Um, on HFS, there's not a lot of free that I would say from a recovery standpoint that are like, you know, this is kind of the downfall of doing recovery for a long time is that you don't always go back and look for free or other, once you have a product that's actually solving a problem. Um, I've, you know, I'm, trying to do business from a time standpoint we've got a lot of things to get done if it works i don't go back and then say i'm going to review 10 other products and figure out what's free um and so for, for a long time there was there was nothing that was really worth it that was free from that standpoint unless you were just looking for the standard things that you would have for photo recovery which are carving and things like that and then you're still going to be far better off with the free stuff in windows so in windows you can go use like pandora recovery and you could still carve pictures out or you could still use a test disk has a photo rec and those are free tools and so you could use photo rec to do a lot of recoveries and carve stuff out of no matter what the file system is, no matter what the operating system is from that standpoint. But uh, but on the paid side, then you know for the home user, our studios is like seventy nine bucks, and then for the tech, um, there's a tech license that's like eight hundred or something. And uh, that tool does HFS and NTFS and FAT and FAT32, and there's a tremendous number of things that it can actually do. And it does try to rebuild the HFS file system somewhat. It's not as good. I don't find it as good as my old tool from Stellar Phoenix. And maybe if somebody else has ever tried a tool that does a binary node rebuild, and, and again, I'm always happy to, to receive uh, any information from any clients or anybody that's out there, anybody listening on the podcast, if you know something I don't know, please feel free to tell me. I don't know everything. And so I just try to run through a huge amount of stuff. And if you have something that does a binary tree rebuild and you know of this tool, please send me an email because I really need more tools and something that can actually be bought today because uh, nobody can buy this 2.0 version anymore of the Stellar Phoenix tool. And I'd love to have something I could tell people in classes or, or on you know podcasts or whatever else. And we'll, we'll tell people on the next podcast if you send me anything. I'll test it and then, uh, and then give people my opinion. But, uh, but, but that's, that's the whole crux of the matter is we want something that does a binary tree rebuild rather than just carving files. Now, the one other thing I want to say about the recovery software from that side is there's a difference – and how software works. Don't don't care don't care so much about the software itself. Care about the tables the software uses. So in other words, um, one the only thing that makes one piece of software better than another piece is how many program headers it knows. 
And what I mean by that is at the beginning of a JPEG, like I described earlier, there's an FFD8. And so when it, you have a program that says, I'm going to do a photo recovery, it's going to, that would be one of the headers it searches for. There may be a dozen others, but it knows the header that begins for FFD8 for a JPEG, FFD9 for the footer. And these are the things that make every program slightly different is how many headers does a program have? Or if you want to do a recovery yourself, can you enter in your own header? Or can you customize something? Because you can do your own. You can do it by hand if you wanted to. But from one program to another, the headers are what matters. I find RStudio to be pretty full-featured, but there are a couple of things it doesn't know. Even though they have a Mac version of RStudios, I don't think it finds all of the Mac software and knows all the headers that's specific to Mac software. Whereas a tool that was written for a Mac specifically and not ported from a Windows tool might know more. And the fallback tool that I always use in that particular one would be something like um, uh, there's uh, – hold on one second, and I'll pull it up. But it's uh, Data Rescue Plus, and let me make sure I'm saying it right. Uh, it's called Data Rescue Plus from ProSoft Engineering, and they make a tool, version 4, uh, Data Rescue four, I guess is what they're calling it now. So it, maybe they dropped the plus, but it's data rescue plus or data rescue four for Mac. And, uh, and that version seems to do a really good job on the amount of headers and content it knows and carving stuff out. And that one you would have to run on a Mac. So, so in certain instances, I'm running back and forth between I'm going to do this portion of a recovery on a Windows system, and then I'm going to switch over to a Mac and do this portion, and then the two copies that I have will combine, and we have this magical amount of data that we've been able to recover doing the two of them or something along those lines. Gotcha. Okay. Well, it sounds yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of stuff out there. So, um, wow. <laughs> I, I've learned a ton on the um, different file systems, and I and I and I can definitely see the differences. Um, one of the are we done with the as far as the uh, programs? Well, I mean, there certainly are a lot of programs out there, and I what I would say, and one of the things I try to teach in the class when people are, you know, it's not so much about which software you're using if you understand what that software does specifically. And so there's certain pieces that might people might not think, oh, this is not a great piece of software because it hasn't done these three things. But when you're running it for a specific thing, it makes this one piece of software better. So I would say try to kind of look at what your options are, try to understand the software a little bit better. You don't always see it on the front end. You don't always know what it's doing. And sometimes it requires you to do a couple of tests to figure out, you know, what if I create a file and delete a file and then we see if we can recover this kind of file using the software. So there will be certain instances that that I have, um, like for instance, if I'm doing NTFS, my opinion on NTFS, the best application that I've ever seen that carves out uh, all the MFT entries and does everything the best it can is from Runtime. Run, the, there's a company called Runtime.org, and they make uh, some NTFS tools, and I think they're probably one of the best sets of tools for specific types of problems. And so if you're having some trouble with NTFS, it will actually be able to do it, but you do have to understand a little bit about it. Um, I will also tell people, 
and and hopefully runtime. I know I know runtime is doing this because they're trying to make a simpler interface for people to use. But there's a classic version, and then there's this new version that's called Simple, and Simple removes some of the basic options I was normally used to using, uh, trying to do some of the recoveries, or or they're hidden in some cases as well. But it doesn't seem like I have all of them. Um, I prefer the classic version. So just make sure if you're buying the tools from them, ask. That does your license apply to the classic version and not just the simple one? And you'll see that it's an uglier interface on the on the uh, simple on the uh, on the classic one, but it also has more features that I can actually manipulate to get a recovery the way I want to. And so, just look at things like that and kind of use your own, you know, your your testing and and some knowledge on your side to try to figure out what it is, rather than just relying on oh, this piece of software is perfect or not perfect. Okay, very good. Um, one of the other questions that I wanted that was in his email is, uh, you know, basically, has Scott done any recovery from MacBook Air SSD? And what, I mean, SSDs are SSDs, right? Is there any difference between a MacBook Air version versus what we see in other uh, computers? Yeah, uh, so the MacBook Air uses a, um, it's it's a card. It's a lot more like what you see like in an iPad or something along those lines where it's actually got a PCIe type interface, a micro interface. And so it's it's a stick. It looks like a memory stick with a connector on one end. And um, I've done, there's, you know, there's different renditions over time. The first, the first two MacBooks that came out actually had a 1.8 inch, uh, whether you bought a flash drive or a spinning disc, you had a 1.8 inch disc in them. And then they switched to the stick basically. And then there's been two or three renditions of this, the stick itself that they've actually done in the MacBook. So when I'm trying to do a recovery from it, the first thing comes up is, 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 is this piece working or not working because if the if the ssd if the itself is dead now you've actually got to deal with that problem and i i maybe have had a couple that have probably had that kind of problem where maybe a transistor or fuse or something blew but generally speaking it's not a problem with that you know usually i'm trying to do a recovery from something that's corrupt so somebody's corrupted something or the hfs partition gets corrupt and i'm tending to try less and less to open Macs to try to recover the data or get or at least get an image of it while it's intact. And the reason I say this is is I would have always done it before. I would have always um, bought a connector, bought an adapter. Uh, there is adapters for some of the MacBook Air SSDs. You'll see them online if you search for them for you know USB adapters or or external you know uh, micro to um, to SATA interfaces and things like that. But I've, I'm finding more and more that it's harder and harder to either access them or there's more of a chance of you breaking something. They're using very small, thin cables on every single thing. It's becoming a, a real you know, pain to disassemble them and some potential for some damage in the process of doing it. Even though as careful as you are and with a lot of practice, you'll still see every once in a while one of the ribbons – just shreds or something happens. So um, I am using primarily these days, there's a forensics tool out there for imaging and doing stuff that's a bootable stick. People probably won't like this answer from this standpoint because it's costly. But uh, I use a tool called Macquisition from Blackbag. Macquisition, and because I'm doing forensics, I can apply some of those same things directly to uh, data recovery. And so I have a tool from Macquisition 
or that's called Macquisition, that can actually boot on the memory stick, has a full operating system, and allows me to interact with the drive. And it's not just uh, it's not just a, a, a and you could probably get something similar if you're just trying to do recovery and you're trying to make an image. You can make your own bootable Mac stick and then just try to do the recovery directly from that or image directly from that first. I always produce an image first, so you're actually looking at something that you would want to do a DD image or a raw image and spit that out to an external drive. Macquisition is optimal for speed. There's some things I can do. I can actually look at logical content and extract logical content, and uh, I can spit off a, a logical, a full image or something like that. And it also does, if you had used File Vault, it will allow you to enter the password from the boot memory stick and access things from File Vault, which is the primary reason that I'm using Macquisition because we've been running more and more into drives that people have actually used File Vault. And then when we're trying to do the recovery, it's an encrypted recovery, so we can't just do a standard raw image of it. We need to be able to decrypt it on the fly while we're doing it. And so if HFS is corrupt and your machine doesn't boot and you've got File Vault on it, Macquisition is a source that you can use to solve that problem. Uh, because you can actually unlock it, and if it can at least get that far, and it can't always, depending on the damage, but if you can get that far, then you don't have to be able to boot or run. All you need to be able to do is image it unencrypted. Okay. All right. And you said that that tool is costly? Yeah, it's it's about (laughs) $1,200. So so if somebody doesn't have that ability, so is there, I'm not going to say easier, but if people were still pulling these machines apart to get to um, that, you know, that stick itself, um, is there? That's probably just as costly, isn't it? Um, no, uh, not because you can buy. There's there's converters and things that you can buy, and you'll have to look at the specific one that you have for the specific version of the Mac because every once in a while there's one that doesn't overlap and and for a while you can't have access to it. And that's why I'm trying to do them in the machine immediately as opposed to trying to do them in a third-party tool or something like that. But you can actually buy an enclosure, take the memory stick out, plug it in, and you'll see several of them online that convert uh, a Macintosh's, uh, a Mac MacBook Air's, um, internal SSD into a you know a small thing that looks a little bigger than a thumb drive that you can just either plug in through a wire or plug in on a cable and actually try to read that way. Um, and then again, sometimes um, you know I have had to do a converter to some specific hardware that would allow me to have a SATA interface directly to it as well. So there are some pass-through things. But again, like I said, everyone's specific, and so you have to look for the one that you have. They don't all apply to each other. There are some changes in them along the way, so make sure that you're researching which model you have and which year it is when you're looking for this adapter. And usually the adapter's 100 150 bucks. Um, so it'll be a lot cheaper and you'll actually be able to use all your other software tools or all your other hardware tools to talk to it if you're going through an adapter. Okay. That makes sense. But then you've got the problem of you basically have to take things apart and we know that Apple loves to use glue and different things. And like you said, the really thin ribbon cables that basically, if you look at them, they, they break. Um, (laughs) well, and again, I have a lot of situations where, you know, Again, this is going to apply a little bit more to the forensic side, where you know it's not a it's not something that was damaged to start with. So we're imaging something that they don't want to avoid the warranty on or do anything with. And so in those particular instances, I want to be as as uh, passive as possible, which is why I started using Macquisition to do it. And again, like I said, you could use you know a boot stick with Mac OS on it, and you could probably put your own tools on there and solve the same problem, but it won't be quite 
what this tool does because it also does write blocking and some other stuff so that you're not making changes to the disk. But it might not be important to you to have that process if you're only doing recovery. Okay. No, it makes sense. Yeah, because you have to have that write blocking when you're doing forensics so that you can't change anything in there when you're trying to recover that data for uh, a forensics yeah, case, correct? That is the plan. That okay. is that that is the idea is to try to make as little or no changes as possible. And again, the other problem that you also have is because of file vault. The more and more you're running into file vault, uh, the more likely it is, especially even in a recovery, you're going to need to do an unencrypted image of that without just plugging it into another machine. Because you can plug it into Windows, but you're not going to get anything off of it. You're just going to get an encrypted disk. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that makes perfect sense. Now, what what is the IMAX uh, new Fusion drive? I'm not even familiar with that. So, so that's the you know the full desktop has a combination of a SSD with a spinning disk, and it's it's not like almost any of the other ones that have ever been out there before because uh, when they and sometimes they call it hybrid or people call it hybrid, it's not really hybrid either. We we've had several generations of drives when we've been talking about it from the Windows side. So let's talk about the Windows side first, and then I'll differentiate that on the fusion drive so we started out back in vista with uh they were coming out with ssd drives and they were going to make hybrid drives and but they were only going to be compatible with windows because they needed a driver you had to have a driver to manage the content that was going to be on the solid state portion of the disk and it basically used it for caching so certain things that would be uh, cache data would be put off on the SSD to make it start quicker or to make it run faster from the spinning disk itself. And as time went on, we got better and better SSD drives. And so now some of that stuff is built in uh, both the hybrid drives and the SSD drives so that now they emulate a full drive and that you don't typically need a driver to make it work. However, even on new Intel ones, you'll actually see that there's a driver that actually runs on the hybrid one. So if you buy a drive that's 500 gigs and says it have 32 gigs of flash on it, what it really does is it partitions it most of the time into two separate partitions. So you're only getting 15 gigs in one partition and 15 gigs in the other partition in the SSD area, but you don't see the SSD area. You don't use the SSD area. It's used for um, for a quick startup so that you can make your machine go to sleep and wake up really quick and for paging files and caching files and stuff like that. So it's it's not an SSD in the way that you think of, oh, I have an accessible drive I can go read and write from. And content's cached to the disk and back and forth, so when it has a chance to write it, whatever's in the SSD hybrid area gets written to the spinning disk. So you're essentially safe if the spinning disk portion works almost all the time on a Windows machine. Now, when Max came out with this uh, Fusion drive, what the idea was... Um, we have a function called trim. Microsoft asked for a function from the ATA command committee who decides all the commands that are going to be available on a drive, and it's called trim. And trim is a function that allows you to say, do I have a hard drive or do I have a spinning disk, a, a solid-state disk? If you have a solid-state disk, let's turn off some of the functions so that we don't do certain things like defrag, as an example. When uh, Windows does a lot of things that have performance increasing things so that it says, well, I know the outside edge of the disk is the fastest because I can store more data there. So you've used this Excel file 65 times. Let's move it to the outside edge of the disk in the closest place we can. And it does an automatic defrag routine and tries to increase performance based on that. But if you have an SSD 
you can only write to it a certain number of times, and depending on what type of SSD you have, it can either be 3,000, 5,000, 10,000, or 100,000. And I didn't make those numbers up. Those are real numbers. <laughs> uh, it can only write to it that many times and in one space. And so defrag is detrimental to a drive that does that, that you don't want to defrag your SSD drive. So trim turns off this function. So Apple uh, says they support trim. And it does say, you know, trim enabled or trim on some of these drives. And I, I don't know. They've never really quite told us all the stuff they actually do, whereas Microsoft has been kind of transparent in what they'll do if trim is on and what functions they disable. Um, I haven't really ever gotten a list, and maybe there's one out there. Maybe a user knows of a place somewhere that they can send it to me. But uh, but we've never really gotten a good list of what it is that they're doing. And then they came out with this Fusion Drive. And so what it looks like is, to me, in my mind, they never disabled defrag. So even though they had a trim function and it was supposed to – one of the things you would want to do is disable uh, the defrag so that trim says I'm not going to destroy my solid-state drive. It, what it looks like to me is they didn't disable that function. What they do now is they try to take advantage of a dis, uh, uh, this defrag routine on – the fusion drive. And what the fusion drive is, is basically you have the beginning of the disk is a solid state disk. And then beyond the end of that solid state disk is a spinning disk. And so you will renumber all your LBA blocks. Whereas on Windows, it just caches it. On this one, it's actually active. So what it says is my first 128 gigs of my disk is uh, these LBA numbers, logical block addresses. So when you say sector zero, sector zero is on the solid state disk. When I get to the end of the solid state disk, now I use the rest of that space as a spinning disk, and I have content sitting out there. And then we have a function part of core services, and core services is the management piece that says I'm sitting on top of, of the solid state disk, and I want to move content from the spinning disk to the solid state disk. How do I manage it? So there's this function that's called core services that manages what's going to be on the solid state disk versus what's on the spinning disk, and it seems to do something very similar to defrag. It's basically saying I want to move this stuff to the lower LBA block, so I'm going to take this chunk and defrag it, basically write it over here, or move that file over here. And so th that's that's how I've been thinking of it as I've been looking at the data is, uh, you know, it's it's basically a similar function to saying, here's some performance increasing stuff. We know you're using this file a lot, and this file needs to exist in the solid state disk, so it's in the fastest part of the disk, and all of your movies are sitting out here on these extended areas of the disk. And so is Windows, by the way. If you install Windows on your on your Mac, uh, it's sitting on the spinning disk portion, not on the solid state portion. Okay, so it, so as far as data recovery, is it? It's not really a whole lot different than the regular drives out there. Um, it, it, it is different in the fact that in a lot of cases, I have to try to use core services. You know, after I've repaired something, fixed something, or done something, I have to re-implement everything and get it back up and running again as best I can so that I can actually use uh, any of those functions to treat that as their partitions and dealing with them from that side. So so I do have to deal with that or manage it. And this is one of the reasons why I said if HFS gets corrupt and I can talk to the device at all, I'll try to do it while it's still in the system so I can try to take advantage of those features and those things running because they become harder and harder to deal with when you remove them and you try to do them on a Windows system or try to do them someplace else where you can't get them running. And that normally wouldn't have been my process you know, prior to it, but some of these things are becoming kind of weird and difficult to do, so I'm having to re-implement them in some running system to 
get to this data. Um, and usually I'll make an image of this content first so that if something changes, I still have the ability to go back to the image or do something. But you know, it's just hard to say at this point until I'm actually touching it. If Macquisition or some of my other tools can talk to it, then I'll just go ahead and do those images and get them right away. Otherwise, now I've got to deal with the physical side. What is the damage? You know, in a lot of cases, if it's a spinning disc, we're going to be looking at, you know, motor seizing or some other problem where we're going to have to replace something on the solid state side. You've got to deal with whether or not, you know, your, all your memory, all your chips are intact. Um, I personally think that the fusion drive is something that shouldn't be in a desktop. And, and I know, you know, it's really nice and some people think it's fast and whatever, but you know, the problem is like a MacBook air is asleep half of its life. So when you close it and it's sitting there, it's not doing anything. So the solid state drive isn't writing anything and you've got a huge amount of time. It's not doing just like your iPhone and your iPad. They're using solid state, but they're asleep a big portion of their life. Right. The desk, the desktops, Sometimes, you know, you're talking about movie editors and video and audio editors and rendering machines, things like that, where people are trying to run something that's going to be there 24 hours a day running. And solid state drives just aren't meant to do that. They're, they're, they're not going to write that many times contiguously before they're going to die. And so I think it's going to be a very short lifespan. And those would be the kind of things where even though a, a spinning disk is slower, it's more robust. It's going to last longer. And if you're doing, if you have a fusion drive and you're using it for any of these permanent things that are running 24 hours a day where it doesn't really go to sleep, I highly suggest that you make sure that you have very frequent backups. Don't consider solid state at any point in time a secure media for you to store stuff on. It is not a secure secure media. I've said this before in this podcast and try to make people believe it because when it's dead, it's dead. In a lot of cases, it's very, very difficult to do anything with. And if a chip is, is destroyed or been written too many times, reading back from that content right now and, and technology may catch up later and make it an easier ordeal. But today, it's not an easy ordeal. So on the on the quote unquote hybrid drives, uh, if the solid state portion on that drive just dies, and you're saying that a lot of the, a lot of times the reg, the raw data is on the spinning portion of that disk. Yes. Uh, so so a lot of the a lot of these are caching. So really, what it is is when you have done something, if you're going to close your lid immediately then things are suspended to solid state for it to be the you know the fastest possible way for you to close the machine and walk away with it and come to life when you open it back up again but uh, content that's cached also has like a period of time where they say well when it's uh when when the system is alive and it's you know it's got a second of time that something else isn't going on i'm going to write some of this critical data or or you know move it out to the other side or also you're also talking about a page file and stuff where it's not critical data uh you know it's content that was in memory and paged out uh or your hi- you know your hibernation file and things like that so it's really built for speed from that purpose, not from, uh, and it is pretty safe by comparison. I'm not going to say every single thing, whatever the most recent thing is that you're working on may not have made its way to the spinning disk or stored anywhere at this point. It may be still in cash. So it's still potential for loss of the most current thing that you're usually working on. But, uh, but that's, that's not the situation. That's not what's happening on the Mac side. That's not what happens with the, with the fusion drives. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm still, um, I'm still amazed that people, and I've heard people tell me this, that, you know, they feel safer with their SSD versus their spinning drive. And I just, I shake my head and go, 
Now, I, you know, in my system now, I have a hybrid system, which is basically my SSD has my operating system on it and nothing else. It, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it has my, you know, basic programs, maybe my Adobe yep. stuff, you know, Office, whatever. But all my data is on a spinning disk and that's where it's stored. And that's, you know, it's backed up to another spinning disk, <laughs> you know, yep. and, and that's, you know, because quite honestly, if my SSD dies, I have a clone image on a spinning disk where I can basically unplug that plug the spinning desk in and, and I'm on my way. Um, because I, I don't want to be without my computer for you know more than a few minutes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, and I understand what you're saying. I hear it every day and I hear people say they're switching out their hard drives to spinning it and all their backup media. You know, I've seen people buy like five SSD drives at the same time. And now they're getting rid of all their other disks and they're making all five of the SSDs, their backup media or archiving stuff off of spinning disk and putting them there. And, and here's my problem. And, and again, as a whole, from a data recovery side and what I've seen, I'm thinking safety first and speed is second. And speed is beneficial if you have a good backup, but you know they are safer from a movement point of view. Like you're going to drop it, you're carrying it around in something that's working or something that's running, then, then at least from that standpoint, they are safer media. And I personally would, if I'm traveling or moving or doing stuff, I would take an SSD as that primary media. But none of my stuff is going to only exist there. Right. There's no way it's going to happen. And on top of that, it's never going to exist on two of the same type of SSDs. So in other words, if I would not go to the store, buy two of the same type of SSDs and make one my backup of the other one because – they have firmware problems and other things, and if you're using them about the same or the same amount of time, what you end up with is a firmware bug has a problem. It kicks off. It may be triggered by the same event that causes the problem on the second one that you're using for your backup. Oh, so then, yeah, so then you're hosed anyways. Yeah, and a lot of times I look at laptops as – you're right. From a, from a standpoint of, hey, if you drop your laptop, you have an SSD in there, there's a better chance you're not going to get a scratched head or something like that, but – at the same point, I look at to me, I look at a laptop as an extra uh, you know, piece of equipment. It's not my main piece of equipment. Now a lot of people live in their laptops day in and day out. So that's definitely something to look at. Right. I would and I would definitely say I feel like in my mind, from looking at the difference between Windows people and Mac people, Windows people are even though you know, we're getting, you know, enough of those drives in for recovery and laptops and everybody kind of knows. It seems like they're very certain, oh, yeah, we don't have a backup. They know they don't have a backup. They know they need to do a backup, and they often, you know, just never get around to it or something happens and they don't do it often enough. On the Mac side, I feel like the people feel like this is a very safe media. We're far better off. And and you may be when it comes to viruses and some other stuff that normally impact Windows people more and make their critical data disappear quicker, But but they act like – well, okay, this MacBook Air has all my critical data on it. It's the only one I have, and I'm not even backing it up because I feel safe that it's there. And I feel like that happens more often with Mac people than it does with Windows people. And I think it's just because they think that ecosystem is so much more safe. And it's no different. The equipment, the platform, everything else is no different. The difference is in the safety of the OS. But you know, you can still have your laptop stolen or, you know, somebody can, it can still burn down your building or it can be, you know, at the airport, somebody steals it off the, off the cart. I mean, it, it, it's the same problem without having a backup and moving that stuff off. Now I will say also the people who do go buy a time machine or something like that, they're far more likely to at least have the backup because it literally is pretty much one click and right, you're done. Right. 
Which, yeah, it, it, on that side, it is nice because, um, you know, I've had to come up with a pretty intricate backup system to make sure that I feel comfortable with what I have backed up. But it's because, you know, I, quite honestly, I mean, could I, could I live without the data? Yeah, uh, I'd be bummed about some pictures and, and family videos and stuff like that. But, I mean, most of it is kind of like I could live without it, but there's a lot of creation and time that went into a lot of the stuff that I've created over the years. So um, it would still be a bummer and I, and I don't want to lose any of that stuff. So um, yeah, I, I don't have a one, you know, I use several different programs to basically back my stuff up. And so hopefully um, I'm covered. <laughs> well, I, I hope you're covered too, because you have my podcast. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, and it, it's funny, this goes on to a, I actually record this onto a, a hardware piece of equipment, a recorder, but I also have my backup is a software program that runs in windows. And so I have both. And if something happens to one or one becomes corrupted, at least I have a backup of that, of that system. So, <laughs> and there is a, uh, something I just want to mention because we have, you know, people with Macs have time machine and I think, uh, you know, windows eight, one tried to do something, to make it a little bit easier, I guess, for people to do. And I haven't used it because I, tr- I don't use many uh, 8.1 machines. I have two or three, but I don't usually use them for critical data. They're more for experimenting. But there is a, a new uh, piece of software on there that's called File History. And and File History looks like something that's very similar. Like you can actually, if you start it up or you do a search on 8.1 for File History, uh, I, when I when I've looked at it before, there was a button, and I haven't done it yet just to see if it worked. But there's a you can add an extra drive, so you can actually attach a, a hard drive, an external hard drive to your machine. And then there's a button that says you know attach external drive, and it'll do periodic backups, uh, which seems similar to Time Machine. I haven't tested it yet, but I just wanted to mention it for people out there that might be on eight one and think you know I need a backup. Uh, look at the tool that's called File History. I think is what it's called. Yes, actually, I've, I've set it up on a couple of customers' machines, um, and it basically is that easy. You basically, whatever, if you're you know plugging a USB stick in or an external drive, basically, once you, once you set it up the original time and you plug it in, it'll make incremental backups and make sure that all your data is backed up on that stuff. So when it does that, uh, how easy is it? Have you actually tested the restore process? I have not. Um, because I've never had, you know, here's what I, a lot of customers have, you have been using Norton's backup tool because, you know, with, with certain ISPs, you get, you know, your Norton antivirus for free. And so it's got this, you know, all of them have this backup tool in them. And a lot of people are using that. The problem I've run into is a lot of these same people that are using this backup tool, um, their backups just keep building and building and building. And there's never, they never increment and they're just, they they fill up the disk and then all of a sudden when they need their critical data it's not there, right? Because they never cleared anything off and so they never get another backup. Exactly. So it stopped working, you know, and it's been like that for months. Um, so as far as I've just started using this in when because I don't have a whole lot of Windows eight one machines, but some of my customers that do, um, I've set it up for them. So uh, it, that's a good idea though. I probably should set up a uh, do a test on recovery to make sure that their data is there. Yeah, it's on my list as a, you know, like I said, one of the things that even still in recovery, like people aren't sending in 8.1 machines. Uh, we're just not seeing like nobody, you know, I guess mostly they're going to be tablets or some laptops out there, but like n- almost nobody's using 8.1 still 
as okay. far as I can see, that has made it into a recovery scenario. I would say, and the other thing is, I might not, I might not even know. Sometimes it's eight ones because we don't boot their stuff. We actually are doing a recovery from NTFS, and I may not even look at what the version of the file system is when I'm doing that because I can do the recovery anyway. But, uh, but you know, at least from that standpoint, I haven't had a lot of time to test it. But I would say that's probably you know the next thing. Make sure that you're testing your backups and that you can restore them, and then periodically put like a schedule in your because because even I have to do this for the company side if you're counting on something to do backups the biggest failure is you and so (laughs) in 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 30 days if you don't check on it 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 may not be running for some reason and you don't know why and now you're you're dead and you thought you had a backup and so I would say make an entry into your phone on your calendar that pops up you know every two weeks or something that says check log for backup or something and make sure that it backed up correctly um and, and we, there's one other thing I want to mention too on Windows machines, because so Windows Vista and on added something called Shadow Copy. Yes. And and I've mentioned this before that Shadow Copy is it's there even if you don't have the interface for it because if you have the home versions, the interface for Shadow Copy isn't on the computer. But what actually happens is it every time you make a change to a file, uh, you know, you open your PowerPoint presentation and you delete some stuff, it actually makes a snapshot. Uh, I think. And it changes for each version of Windows. Like it used to do it like every 24 hours in Vista and then Windows 7, I think like every three or five days. Now I think it's like a week or every three weeks in 8.1. But it does a shadow copy. And what would happen is if you were in Explorer and you went to your file, you right-clicked on it, and you said um, previous versions – you can actually restore a previous version of your file from that snapshot. So if it's a week old, then of course you're going back a week and it would actually have that copy from a week ago. And those are places we sometimes also find a recovery from, but there is a tool that will look at it on any computer that has a shadow copy and it's called shadow explorer. And you go shadowexplorer.com and you can download that tool and you can actually recover some of your old files out of it. So if your disk is dead and you're attaching to it from another machine, you can use Shadow Explorer to look at the shadow copies you have on that drive and restore previous versions that are deltas and changes on that file. Yeah, I was surprised when I actually installed my operating system. I was trying to figure out um, why why I was taking so much space on my SSD and I had Windows 8.1 Pro installed. And I and I went and looked. You can't see it unless you dig. You got to do a command line entry to look at the shadow copy. And it was ten gigs. It it starts off and it yeah, just it right. isolates ten gigs for uh, basically making those backups. Um. So yeah, that's very yeah. That's a good idea. Um. Using those it, types of things. But at least it's uh. And this is you know kind of the cool thing because I know like Mac people always talk about Time Machine as the oh yeah so awesome because it's so easy and you only had to click this button. But there's there's and and Macs do have kind of a duplicate copy system that's built in to Mac OS now since like uh I don't know Lion Mountain Lion uh they added this where it does the duplicate copy and it actually stores it in the user's entry. You can't see it, but it's it's available there for a duplicate copy and it exists and I see it in forensics all the time. But you know, this is a live copy on a Windows machine. This is a live backup of your file while it's in use. And then, you know, the only problem is the snapshotting process is, you know, right now the schedule is kind of lax. I think they're like I said on Windows eight point one, I think they're doing it, you know, like every week or three weeks or something. But you can use a command called VSS admin. And that's how you can control it. You yes. can use VSS admin, which is also what's used on servers, and it's been around for over a decade. 
but that's how snapshotting is done. But just just keep that in mind as a possible place for your backups if you're trying to do your own recoveries. Very good. Wow, I think we have covered a ton on this show. Uh, wow. <laughs> Great, great information, and I uh, just want to thank Michael for uh, basically sending in that email and, and getting this conversation going because I, uh, I, I've i learned a ton, I, and I appreciate your time, Scott. Anytime. Thank you. Um, yeah, and if, if basically, if people want to find you, I know we have your information up there, but what's what's the best way to do that? So uh, myharddrivedied.com is my website, and so if you go there, uh, you'll see all the stuff about presentations and all these podcasts and things are all listed there. And then I also teach a class, and I have an upcoming class next month in uh, Atlanta in January uh, 2015. It'll be uh, somewhere the third week of, of January. So if anybody's interested in more of the same stuff we've been talking about, I, I have practicals and things like this of all the things we've talked about in, in my class. Like we go over all of these things and actually do them and repair drives. We actually physically take head assemblies and platter assemblies out and repair them. So please email me if you're interested in that. And I'd love to see any of you in my class. Very cool. Yeah, definitely. Uh, if you guys are interested in the, in forensics data recovery, this, you know, as far as what I've seen out there, Scott has the information that can basically teach you how to get this stuff back uh, versus, you know, the, you know, so, I mean, when a drive's dead for a lot of us techs, it's just dead. And there's not a whole lot we can do until we go a little bit deeper with a lot of the stuff that you teach in your classes. So that's, that's great. Thanks. Um, if you guys have any, uh, have any questions for this show, uh, you can email us at mhdd at podnuts.com. And if you want to leave a voicemail, call one 697 162 And uh, we'll definitely read the emails on the show and definitely play the voicemails and, uh, Scott will answer the questions. I'll just sit here and be a, a gracious host. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> well, and thank you for all you do. You're doing a great job. I appreciate it. <laughs> no problem. And if you guys could do us a favor, please leave us a rating and review over on I- iTunes. Uh, that'll help, uh, you know, uh, boost the show up a little bit. And just kind of, if, if it's helping you out, you know, let us know so we can kind of, uh, you know, gauge what we're doing is, is interesting to you guys. So, um, we do it for, you know, the folks out there. Um, you guys can also help support the Podnest Network. The next time you're shopping on Amazon, go to podnest.com slash Amazon. And I want to thank everyone for listening and subscribing to the show. We'll see you next time on My Hard Drive Died. Music provided by Steve Cherubino at stevecherubino.com.